Hi, welcome to Building a Business That Lasts. My name is Jay Owen, and I'm your host. On a quest towards stories, tips, and ideas that will help you grow a business without being stressed out, worn out, and ready to quit. Each week, I'll interview other business owners who have successfully grown businesses of all types for many years. It's my hope that these conversations will help you build a business that lasts. On this episode, I interview Jason Blummer. Jason is the chief innovative officer of his firm, Blummer & Associates CPAs. The firm is one of the first to move from a traditional office to a virtual environment where they serve digital marketing and design agencies. He focuses heavily on business coaching and consulting while his team meets the technical and compliance needs of the customer. Jason also hosts two podcasts, one of which I've had the pleasure of being on, the Thrivecast and the Businessology Show. He speaks and writes frequently for CPAs and design agencies, and his firm is a chosen niche for many of them. Uh, It's a pleasure to have Jason on the show, and I think you'll love this conversation if you're curious about virtual environments, learning more how to grow a team virtually, especially if you're in the design and marketing fields. Jason has a lot of great insights that may be helpful to you. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Jason. Hey, Jason, thanks for being on the show. Hey, Jay, I'm so excited. You're on my podcast, so I'm, I'm pumped to be on your podcast. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, so this is really fun. Uh, I get to kind of uh, switch seats. I got to be the interviewee this last time, and now I get to be the interviewer. And I That's think there's a lot of commonality between things that we uh, believe and like, so I think it'll be a great talk today. Oh, yeah. I can't wait. Your questions are always really big and purposeful. So that's the kind of stuff I like to talk about, man. Cool. So I always like to start with uh, just kind of a question for you that's a little bit open-ended and just let you tell the audience. I've already explained kind of what you guys do, but I'd like to hear a little bit more about why you got started, what made you start Blummer CPAs to begin with, and then the podcast and what's your journey look like over the years since you began? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So a lot has changed. Um, Really, I've always been entrepreneurial in nature uh, and very creative. I was just in bands growing up in college. And so I don't people wonder why I went into accounting. <laughs> I don't know. My my dad was an accountant. So that's kind of why I chose that and then became a CPA and then started working in some firms about 20 years ago and just didn't like how that service industry was done, thought I could do it better and left and went to work in a firm that my dad had started in 1997 and I started leading it in 2003. And so I guess that's almost 15 years ago, probably. So, you know, thought I could do it better, could not do it better. <laughs> but I had to go through what I call the wilderness a little bit, trying to figure it out on my own and learning. I really needed a lot of help. And it really got to a point a few years ago where it actually became pretty overwhelming to try to manage all of these things. Uh, like you, Jay, I'm this visionary, creative guy who has the ideas. But there's another side to that, and that's the the traction component, the execution of those ideas, and all that flows out of an idea. There's so much to it. And I was just being overwhelmed trying to manage all of my many ideas with also trying to execute it and support a team. And so I got a partner uh, going on three years ago. And Probably in those. So in the past three years, and I was maturing up to that point, but in the past three years really have matured in a huge, just a huge way of letting go of my own personal agendas in a business, letting a partner have a say, letting a partner care for me in a way because I'm a visionary. My partner's the integrator and we we're polar opposite. We fulfill those roles in, in serious ways. So I have to give myself over to let somebody else 
lead me, so to speak, and lead me in the health, the things that keep me healthy and the, and the work paces that keep me healthy. So, you know, so there's just been, and I've, I've messed up a lot of things, but I've done a lot of things right. But adding a partner was really probably what forced me to mature as a business leader. Uh, and now she and I are really focused on caring for a team of about 11, probably going on 12 or 13 this year. So that's kind of the the journey. I don't know if that was too long or what. No, that's great. That's awesome. And, and lots of lots of stuff to unpack there uh, that I'd love to kind of hear from you. One being, let's start with the partner aspect because that's a big change uh, to go from oh, yeah. being kind of the sole person in charge, if you will, to, as you said, letting go and turning over some of those responsibilities to somebody else that maybe has different strengths than you do. First of all, how did you find that partner? How, how did that mm. happen? And then yeah. how have y'all learned to work together in a way that is better for everybody? Yeah. So I think it's important to work with somebody for as, as long as you can before they become a partner to really see if you fit and mold together. So Julie, my part, partner started working with me for a couple of years, just managing the business side of the firm, just kind of keeping things straight there, the billing, the invoicing, the payroll, and she was just bent to do that really well. Then I started a journey of, I mean, I didn't really know why I needed a partner, but I was clear. And you can hear that when you talk to people around me that are close to me, they knew I needed a partner. I said I needed a partner and I described it like this. I said, I need somebody to stay up worrying about things the way I do. Mm. So I, I really needed somebody to love this firm the way I do. And it's hard to find that. And I met with a number of partners and then, you know, Julie's there the whole time. And I went, wait, she's the person I'm looking for. She was already working with me and loved it already uh, just because of who she is. And so, you know, just took her out. My family took her and her family out. And I just asked her and she thought about it and then became that. Now, and in our first year, we didn't know what we were doing. We had we were not prepared to be partners. Nobody walked us through that. But on our year anniversary, we had read Rocket Fuel. Mm. Uh, by Mark Winters and co-authored by Gina Wickman. And that, I mean, it was just an aha moment. We went, oh, I see what we are. And I see now why we struggle sometimes because we did in that first year, we really struggled to figure out what all right, I'm supposed to give you something. You're taking something and, and I don't know that I'm doing these things and you don't know what you're doing. And, and the rocket field defined us. It gave us titles. I'm a visionary. She's an integrator. Then we started rolling into our roles and understanding and having a context to discuss, well, why are you doing that and why am I doing this? Well, it's because I'm this way and you're that way. And so it gave us the context of, you know, this construct of a conversation we could have. And then we started moving towards operating as really healthy partners from that point forward. Mm, that's really good. Uh, for a little context for folks that may be listening, the uh, Rocket Fuel book, which I have not actually read that one, but it's co-authored uh, by Gina Wickman, as you said, who wrote a book called Traction, which is one I have read recently. And if you're in a, the creative space, a lot of times, at least for me, I know one of my weaknesses is structure and process and yep. kind of figuring out how to get through some of these things. And it sounds like that book's been really, or that team of books, I guess, has been really helpful for you guys as it has been for me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, Jay, I'm just like you. The structure and processes are things I just didn't manage, didn't care for, didn't realize how important they were. But uh, there's so much infrastructure to a firm, especially. And I think people really start feeling it when you get team sizes of eight to 10. You really start hitting this growth ceiling where these visionary entrepreneurs are really starting to hit the limitations of what they can do on their own, especially with a team that size, because mm -hmm. that team requires a certain amount of care 
if you have that big a team, it means you have clients that are feeding a, a revenue size in to support that kind of team. So you have more clients. And so really from the, from eight to 10, those growth ceilings are, uh, those are broken through process and structure and infrastructure. And, that, you know, I'm just not good at that and probably something you struggle with. So it just so happened, Julie, my partner is just really innately good at that. She can't help but be good at it. And so I had to learn to give up parts of what I thought should be done to her because she can do it better than I. And, and it's really, it's been a catalyst to our growth from there. Yeah. I always kind of say that I, I was able to wing it to 10 people and a million dollars, but, but after that, there I, you needed, go. I needed something else. And it was very clear talking to other business owners that seemed to be kind of a common ceiling that eight to 10 people. So if you're out there listening and thinking, man, I'm starting to approach that size or what do I do when I, when I do approach that size, I'd strongly encourage you to check out Traction and Rocket Fuel. Great books yep. for um, mm-hmm. that. And then another one somebody just introduced me to, I don't know if you've ever heard of, um, I think his name is Vern Harnish in one of his books called Scaling Up. Oh, yeah. Um, I just got that one. Another podcast interview actually sent it to me. Really, really great book. A lot of similarities with Traction in that book. It is. I think we we actually started with Scaling Up and it seemed kind of big and more corporate mm-hmm. for us because we were small. And then Traction is this I mean, even even the founders of the entrepreneurial operating system, EOS, as defined in traction, they say we're for an entrepreneurial company, you know, up to right. a certain team size. So they they even say they're for that smaller company. And so I think traction fit more in line with us just being a small business, probably. So yep. it fit better for us. One thing I'd love to circle back to is is you had said that you really felt like you needed somebody who was, you know, felt like they needed to stay up thinking about things. And I think this is one thing that a lot of folks, if they're thinking about starting a business or they're thinking, man, it would just be so great for me to run my own business because then I can just do whatever I want whenever I want. I always kind of throw a little bit of caution out there and say, hey, talk to some other folks who own a business because there are some struggles, one of which is not being able to turn it off. And I'm curious how, you know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, you realized early on that you had a lot to learn and you were a little overwhelmed. I'd love to kind of dig into that a little bit deeper and hear, you know, when you realized you were overwhelmed, what overwhelmed you specifically and and how you've kind of learned to get out of that, the partner being obviously part of that. Yeah. So probably what was overwhelming me was I have so many ideas that I would launch all those ideas. So if there was an idea, I'd think about it, I would I would launch it, I would publish it, I would put it on a blog or whatever, and I would say, this is a thing we're going to do, not realizing just the full list of things that had to happen afterwards. So I think I was just, there was a point at which I was doing things and launching things where there was no follow-up to keep those things rolling. And so after a while, it becomes a house of cards. It does start falling in on you because you're like, all right, you start missing things, you start looking foolish because you're not accomplishing the things you launched and made promises to either to a team or to a marketplace or whatever it may be. And maybe you launch stuff and it's an event. Well, you know, the night before the event, you kind of haven't prepared as well. And so you're staying up all night. You, bec- you start to become unhealthy. And that unhealth of, a, of an entrepreneur is a key thing. My partner and I talk a lot about and we we actually lead other people and Health related activities are huge things that that are that are huge, especially for an entrepreneur in a business that moves quickly when they're passing a team size of eight to ten. Uh, a focus on health becomes a big issue. So I think I was just throwing all that to the wind and just not pulling off all the things I had promised. And it just, you know, it crushes you uh, because at night you're thinking about, you know, 15 ideas that you're that are not fully fleshed out or moving forward. And, you know, they're not. And so it just stresses you. And if you don't have anybody helping you, 
you're you're bearing that in your mind night after night and it just becomes overwhelming. Yeah, I think that's a big deal. And I think a lot of that's not talked about enough, especially the health of right. the entrepreneurial world. I mean, I've heard a few people like Gary Vaynerchuk's lately been talking a lot about you know, mm. some people that he knows that entrepreneurs that ended up in very bad situations even ended up committing suicide. And mm. because that's terrible. It's, I mean, it's heartbreaking because it it's is. the same kind of thing. There's so much internalization. There's a lot of pressure to feel like, okay, I got to do better than last year. I got to do better than last year. And that's right. not necessarily even outside pressure. I think, at least for me, a lot of times it's my own personal pressure I put oh, on yeah. myself. Okay. And uh, I think talking about those things is really valuable for other folks who may be listening and may be in that boat of being overwhelmed and going, hey, there is a way out. And in, in health, I think especially, it's easy to put it on the side burner. I mean, <laughs> myself, oh, yeah. last year, I gained a bunch of weight because I spent a bunch of time not thinking about food and exercise like I had in the past. And I felt like I could just put it on the side burner. And I realized now that put a lot more harm on me than it did help. It may have freed up a few hours here or there, but in the long run, it wasn't helpful choice. Oh, no, no. And, that you know, the health is the is the thing that just, you know, it goes. You just let it go because uh, you're trying to keep a business running. So it can be hard. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the things I'd like to talk a little bit about is your uh, agency is very different from a lot of CPA firms. I think in general, when you think uh, of an accountant, uh, no offense, but it seems kind of like a boring uh, situation. And it, it's just not something that people go, oh, yeah, that's a creative space. And here you are right. as an admittedly a creative guy in a relatively uncreative space, at least for the majority of the marketplace. And oh, even yeah. in your bio, it talks about a lot of coaching and consulting. And you got two podcasts that you do. So how has that kind of come about and changed over the years? And how have you found ways to spend the time on those things while still having a team to take care of the actual technical and compliance needs of the customer? Yeah, so that could be a big answer. So I'll, I'll be careful how, how deep I go into that. But probably about seven or eight years ago, we started getting just designers as clients. And we had a brick and mortar firm at the time. And we're in South Carolina, or at least that's where my partner and I are based. Our team's all over the U.S., but we would get clients in the state of Washington, uh, and it, it blew my mind. I'm like, they okay, so they apparently don't care that we're in South Carolina. So it, it just made me start thinking about this industry. And of course, you know, you're these you're a creative guy. Y'all don't really care about paper, and you don't want paper tax returns. You know, you want these digitally. And uh, and I I thought, well, this could be a way to operate. So it it seemed that this creative space liked to do business in the way that I like to do it. So we, we started a journey to become a virtual firm and we accomplished that about six years ago and then made a full focus on the creative space. And it is true. There are no barriers for these creative agencies. They really don't care where their firm is, is located. It's not a thing they care much about. And it's because how they do business, right? They have contractors all over the world. They just, it, there's just not a location issue for them. And so it really has just worked out that I'm creative, but also this space is they like to do business in the way that we like to do it, too. And, of course, I'm creative, too, and I love to talk through ideas. But one thing we've had to do is we've had to focus our business model in a very specific way to serve this marketplace. And we've kind of taken a lot of hints from the agency space. So we have a role called a customer ally which is an experienced accountant that may be a CPA or they just have, you know, masters in taxation, a lot of experience. And we assign clients to that customer ally. And so it's like an account executive or something like that. And so that customer ally, their job is to fulfill the contract with that creative agency, with our firm. And other changes we've made to our business model is 
we only contract in the name of businesses. So we've we've cut off ourselves to the to individuals. Now we do the individual taxation and planning of the owners, but we are decidedly about a company. And because of that, that's allowed me to to do things like coaching and consulting with companies to help them grow. And so all the things I've learned through growing a, you know, a creative service-based company, which is what our firm is, I can apply to these creative service-based agencies too. So we're a growth firm that does all the things that CPA firms do, accounting, tax, bookkeeping, payroll, pay your bills, be your controller, taxation, corporate, individual, but it's for a business and there are requirements. We've got to work with a business that wants to grow. And our model of pay is a little different, too. We, uh, people have to enter into a 12-month contract. We have to draft our prices every month on, you know, on the 1st or 15th of the month because we then pay a percentage of our revenue from the client to the customer ally, to this technical team. Mm-hmm. And so they're fully paid based upon the happiness and service and pay from the client. It's very tied directly together. And so one education issue we run into in the market space is people come to us and they say, well, your price is $1,500 a month. Well, that's what I paid my CPA for the whole year. And so we have to educate people that they're buying something different. Mm. They're talking to a firm that's not a CPA firm, so to speak, though we do all the things that CPA firms do. We actually train and lead our team in a way to challenge owners to grow. Uh, and it takes a lot of time you know, to do that, to train our team that way uh, and to build a team to do that. We have to educate people. We're not a f- CPA firm in the way that you think we are. That's why the prices are different because you're yeah, buying something different, you know, but it's a hard, it's a thing we got to educate about. So that's where there's a little mismatch and, and it's just, that's understood. So we just have to explain that to people who want to be a client. Well, because to some extent you're, you're really more of a partner or a real part of their business versus somebody yeah. who just shows up and does the taxes once a year or balances the books. That, that is that's a big right. difference. Yeah. And so we have to explain that, you know, we have to explain there's a different value for that. At least we perceive it as a different value and the prices are going to be different because the value is higher. It's, it's a similar you know? thing for us. I mean, we, when we enter into marketing engagements, I always tell people, we could just do what you tell us to. I can come in and build you a website or design yeah. your logo or whatever, but that's not really an ideal client for us anymore. We want people that kind of say, Hey, here's what we're trying to achieve. What kind of things can we put in place in order to do that? And we're almost coming in as like a partner alongside them mm. in the same way that you yep. are. And I really believe in that model. Yeah. And so what it does is it forces you to you, you have to limit a little bit about the number of clients you can take on, you know, because you, you go so deep to serve these clients uh, so deeply. You can't just, you know, take on a huge number of clients. It's important to take on so many that you can serve them well. So that's what we have to do. Three things I want to dig into related to what you just talked about. And I'm going to work on them backwards. The first is going to be a team pay, the percentage idea. The second is a distributed or virtual team. And the third is going to be about uh, niching up. So let's start with the team pay percentage because I mm-hmm. think that's interesting primarily because I just actually moved uh, two of our account managers who basically manage our marketing accounts, uh, a portion of their pay as actually directly attributed to now the, the scale of the clients that they manage, which mm. helps them have kind of ownership of the responsibility of that client and caring about them staying with us. So I'm curious how you kind of came to a similar model. It sounds like some type of a percentage of the work. I think figuring out compensation for team members that keep people motivated and make sense is a, is a really hard thing for a lot of business owners. Oh, man. Yeah, it is. So, you know, we wanted to do a little more risk sharing with our team and we would 
we would openly say this is not the best model for everybody just because we did it. But it's taken us, you know, we've been on a journey for, I think, six or seven years to really flesh it out uh, and vet it out. And it does. It works well for us. It takes a lot of management internally because we have to be able we want to be transparent with our team. So if they're getting a paycheck, we got to show them the, the draft revenues where it came from. Uh, and the percentage calculations of you get this much percentage for tax, this much for accounting, this much for tax planning, this much for consulting and payroll. And we want to be able to calculate that and show them where we got it. But we've tied it into the way we get paid from our clients, too. So uh, because we can't tell a team member or no smart team member would would be hired into that situation if we then also said, now we just invoice our clients and hopefully they'll pay their bill. Mm -hmm. So we've turned around and made it a requirement to a client. You cannot work with us unless we draft your price monthly. That's the only way we will do it because of the business model. So really to our team, it feels like a salary because they've got, here's your seven clients. These are their drafts. Here's the calculations. Your pay is basically the same every single paycheck. Now, mm -hmm. if we lose a client, your pay will go down. Now, if we get a new client, we want to give you a client, your pay will go up. So, you know, there, so there all, you know, there's always these movements going in and out. Um, and we don't have a lot of movements of clients leaving, but right now we have a, we have a number of leads we're bringing on and they come on so slowly. We have to educate them as to how we do it. And then there's onboarding, there's kickoff. So we've figured it out and we've, it's taken a lot, but it does just, it helps us decide who we can hire because not everybody wants to be hired under that kind of risk sharing model. Some people are like, no way mm -hmm. <laughs> you need to pay me. But now, now we have a team also that is a support team, marketing people, admin people, you know, some director positions. These are decidedly salary. Yep. So we, we don't want them to be paid based upon what a client pays because we want them to love and care for the firm no matter what. Uh, whereas we want the technical team to be solely focused on their clients and making their clients happy. And so we're trying to make this model work depending on what the role is supposed to be doing. So these internal support people are supposed to be loving and caring for the team and the firm. We don't want them tied to a client. We want them caring for any team member, no matter what client they're working on. We don't want them to you know, have some personal agenda around, well, they don't pay as much as this one, so I'm going to serve them better. So the support team is salaried. And then the technical team is all about service to that client. Uh, so we want them paid directly on the happiness of the client and what the client pays them is kind of the construct of what we think about it. Yep. I love that. That's actually a very, very similar to, to how we've kind of shifted over the last year or so. And uh, so far it's work and we got a lot of kinks still to work out, but it's, uh, yeah. I mean, that, that idea I think is, is really brilliant. And the other one that you mentioned there was, you know, getting clients to commit to a period of time and mm -hmm. to auto pay that amount that's due every month, that can radically change just about any business developing mm -hmm. a strong recurring revenue model that's auto paid. That has changed our lives as an agency. Oh, oh man. That, and you know, and it's, you know, you can commit to that and it can change your business model. It can really be such a blessing to your revenue, your cash flow. But you know what? Not all clients are going to love it the way you love it. So you don't, you know, don't be surprised that when you implement things that change your business model, some clients and any, even employees may go, you know what, that's not for me. And so just don't let that surprise you when you do make those big business model changes. 
Yep, absolutely. But I, I think it, it gets kind of a two-way street. I tell clients too is that you know we're asking for a commitment from from them, but that also means that we're committing to them as well. So there, it's mm. a, it's a two-way commitment. It's not just them yep. committing to pay us; it's us committing to serve them. And that's Great. an important distinction. Definitely. The next thing I wanted to talk about that you mentioned earlier was this idea of a distributed team. Uh, there's there's lots of talk in the news about remote teams. Companies that are allowing remote work, some that aren't, those types of scenarios. And I'd love to hear from you things that have worked really well and how you've learned to work as a remote team. <laughs> this is probably some of the biggest mistakes I've made hmm. and probably some of the biggest wins is uh, is managing and leading a virtual team. Um, it's it's a huge deal. I would say it's not for everybody. So it, I, I know there's a lot of talk about remote teams, and it's just not magical. You go remote and you know everything's wonderful and beautiful. Managing a remote team is way different and much harder than leading and managing a team on site. You know, when I first went virtual, probably six years ago, I think, we made a lot of assumptions that our processes would run the same way in a virtual situation than they did in brick and mortar. And it's just not true because you don't realize in person there's a lot of processes that are happening real time. And it may be leaning over the cubicle wall and go, hey, did you, you know, did you code that out? Can I jump on? Well, if you're saying things like that, it's all got to be planned and virtually posted into a room somewhere or documented in a process or keyed into a workflow system so somebody can check it off. And you just don't realize how big the asynchronous piece of the communication is, you know, and sometimes it can be frustrating. Team are posting things in our, our chat system online and then somebody replies when they're available, you know, so there's no, there's not a lot of real time. And so those things threw us for a while. We thought everything was going to be the same, but it's not the same as far as the processes. And then we started learning how to hire inside of a virtual company better, where we made a lot of assumptions where everybody would just love virtual and they would just work really well. Well, the larger you grow, you start running into team members who kind of go rogue. <laughs> they may disappear and not purposely disappear, but they have a perception that, I mean, you got to put yourself in their place. They're at home and there's a laundry basket beside them and there's a dog and kids. There's the outside, there's a window. So they are at home when they're supposed to be at work. Now that's really easily defined when they get in their car and leave and drive to an office. They are obviously at work in an office. And so they work in different ways. We've even discovered I work drastically different in the co-work space. My partner and I occupy than I do at home where mm -hmm. I have a little office. I work completely differently. I get distracted in different ways. And so does our team members. So onboarding a team member into a virtual firm means we have to really set them up for success. We have to ask, how do they get distracted? Where are they going to work? Can they let their family know they're at work when they're actually at home? What are they going to do with that confusion? You know, and so we, we have infographics to help them know how to work virtually successfully. Since we don't track time, you cannot know what anybody's doing because there's no timesheets being keyed in anywhere. So we have a lot of project management tools we use to try to follow work. You know, we have a project manager watching the theme of work. And so it just takes a lot more oversight because it, it just can be really confusing when you're sitting in your house in your pajamas and you, you really are supposed to be at work. They, they act like they're not at work sometimes. Not everybody, but if you don't onboard a team member to a virtual 
workplace the right way, they can be confused. And so you have to do a lot of work to prepare them up front. Yeah, absolutely. I think you and I probably could have an entire uh, podcast on this. I actually had a distributor oh, yeah. for 16 years. We could have a whole episode just on this. Oh, so I got like a man. thousand questions, but I have to move on. But those things are ideas. We may want to have to do an episode two and just focus on distributed teams because that would be fun. Well, um, yeah, I would love to hear your views on it because we're still learning and growing through that, man. If you did it for 16 years, it's like, man, there's so much to learn around a virtual team. It it's is. interesting because it's all I ever knew. And then now we have a physical space, which we put in two years ago. And uh, <laughs> it's a whole, that's a whole episode and a half. Oh, my gosh, I bet. <laughs> yeah. uh, we'll come back to that another show, I think, for sure. I'm going to put a note on that. Uh, the last thing I want to look at before we kind of start to land the, the plane here is the idea of niching up or, or focusing on a particular uh, vertical. I heard a story the other day that Warren Buffett and Bill Gates were at dinner one time, and somebody at dinner asked them both to write on a sheet of paper one word that was most important in their success. Wow. And independently, without seeing it, they both wrote the word focus. And so I'm curious, from your perspective, it sounds like you kind of got into a niche and now you're focused on that vertical somewhat how has that helped you guys focus and, and how it has it improved your agency over time? I mean, yeah, that's definitely true. Focus and a niche is the way to do it, I think. But but Jay, you know this as your your clients try to niche and focus that that comes with things, right? It comes with uh, certain processes. So you can't just say we're focused on a niche. What you're doing when you're saying you're niched is you're making a marketplace promise to an expertise. You're basically saying we're niched because we're better at it than anybody else. Mm -hmm. And so that's really a promise to a marketplace. And so what you got to do is fulfill that promise. So your team has to be part of delivering that higher value. So I think a a claim to a niche is a claim to an expertise. So you got to be ready to make a claim to that expertise. But also niching is a marketing thing too, right? You can actually have a bunch of different types of clients inside your firm. When your website says you're niched in a certain a, a certain vertical. Well, and maybe that's the majority of your clients, but it's not all of them. But those things confuse people. Like, mm-hmm. uh, what is a niche as you're claiming it on a website as compared? I mean, you might go, well, man, we, we say we have agency client where we're niched in that marketplace. Well, we might have a creative interior designer as a client. Well, right. and then you go, oh my gosh, is that part of my niche? I don't know. Should I fire them? And so it, it can get confusing and it is right. I think niching is a way to claim expertise. It certainly is a way if you, if you do it right to make more money. If you're claiming expertise, you get to claim being paid more for it. You just have to deliver expertise services when you're claiming that. So that's a big deal. So I think niching and focus is right, but it comes with something. It comes with a team who can deliver that promise and with you being very focused on growing in those areas. So I think you have to be able to deliver expertise in a different way. So that's that's really important. But I do think it is right to niche if you can pull that off. Yeah, that's really helpful advice. It's not something we've done uh, extremely um in a lot of detail, but I, we're kind of heading that way in a few different areas. It'll be interesting to see how that fleshes out for us and our team over the next uh, couple of years. Nice. The last thing I always like to kind of end on are two questions. Uh, the first one is going to be about kind of family and life or the old work-life balance question. Mm-hmm. And the last one is going to be about your personal development. So to begin mm-hmm. with, I know you've got uh, three daughters and you you know like to work out and, and, and you also run a business and there's all kind of other things going on in life. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I always say it's not a work-life balance. It's a blender. You just got everything in there and it all kind of gets That's messed right. up. That's right. And so what uh, kind of things have you learned over the years as you've grown a company that have helped you find harmony, if you will, in the right mixture of your life? Yeah. Yeah, this is this is something we, we have grown a lot in. One thing we've learned is that the lifestyle of an entrepreneur needs a lot of support. Didn't realize how much. So really... As an entrepreneur, when you're in business, your whole family is in business, mm-hmm. so to speak. So they've got to have a support role for you that's really very solid and strong. Or you could go home and be and be run to death, too. Right. So you're at work and maybe you're just you're just working so hard and you could go home and just work so hard, too, which you do. I believe you do need to do that as a husband and a father. I want to do those things. But the, it's a. Me being called to be an entrepreneur is a big call to my wife and my kids, too, because it 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 relates to how they get to interact with me and support me. And so it's I think that's always something to be working on. But just understanding the level of support an entrepreneur needs um, is a huge deal to have those open and honest conversations with a spouse, a family at home. Because in an entrepreneurial business, entrepreneurial businesses are decidedly very fast. They move very, very quickly. And so with that comes a lot of disruptions. You know, just last night we had a disruption with a huge client and agency uh, in Virginia. And we had to jump on some things and just care for them. And we had to have some meetings with our team late, build some last minute processes to clarify things. And, you know, I had to, you know, I got home about eight. And sometimes that happens and you you just got to have open conversations that entrepreneurial business moves so fast. They often do those kinds of things, but you also have the freedom to make health choices. So, and my partner and I do this a lot. We try to construct our business in a way that allows us to uh, eat well, that allows us to exercise. Uh, we carve out time to, to allow us to do that uh, because it's very, very important to do so. So there, that is a hard balance, but I think it does require really very open and truthful conversations with all the people involved in that entrepreneurial founder's life, uh, or everybody's going to get disheartened about it probably, or get disillusioned and go, whoa, I thought this was, I'm an entrepreneur, I can do anything I want. Well, it also means everything's on your shoulders too. And so if you do that wrong, it means you're not going to see anybody ever. <laughs> you're going to work yeah. all the time. An entrepreneur has the freedom to balance, really, is what I like to say. An entrepreneur has the freedom to balance their life in the healthiest way. Uh, They still sometimes have a lot of work to do, especially if they're a growing business. Uh, But you can balance that in ways to turn that growth off at times. And my partner and I do that. Like even today, we were going, you know what? This thing's happening, but let's put it off because we just can't focus our mental energy on it. It's a big deal. So I even wrote a health blog post on our website. This I don't know if it's out yet, uh, but it'll be coming out pretty soon. Uh, and it's about the six components of health that have to be managed. Uh, it's not there yet. Maybe that'll be out that you can link to by the time you publish the, the podcast. But it, yeah, health is a big deal. Managing health is a big deal. Yeah, and I think that idea of you talking about you know your your family kind of playing a support role. I mean, I always say my wife doesn't have an official title in the company, and she's not mm. technically a partner of the business, but she is. I mean, she, mm-hmm. there, there's nobody that plays a bigger support role than her, and, and there's a lot of there's more value in that than anything I could put on paper. Yeah. Uh, last question, and then we will uh, call it a show. Uh, awesome. the, and that is around your own personal growth. <laughs> you spend a lot of time teaching other people how to do things. You spend a lot of time pouring into your own team. 
You spend a lot of time doing all kinds of stuff that has to happen if you're an entrepreneur and a business owner. But how do you kind of refill your own cup so that you can then overflow that information and knowledge into others, whether it's leadership or technical or personal or spiritual? How do you kind of continue your own growth individually? Mm, That's a huge deal. My partner and I, again, we're big on uh, health-related activities. Again, I think that happens when you get to a team size of eight or 10. Like you said, you wing it up to that point. After that, you got to be really methodical about everything that adds to the growth of your business. And the health of the founder, the entrepreneur, is becomes a huge deal. So we calendar everything. Like like my calendar drives a lot of the things that we we say, that we do, that we teach. So my partner and I, we actually calendar, we block out my calendar for a whole year is what we do. And obviously those are just, that's an idea of what we think this day, this, you know, my life is going to look like over the next year. We tweak it and change it as we go. But what that does is it says to the administrative team member that manages my calendar is, you know, Tuesdays are meeting days, you know, Thursdays are content creation days. Uh, Mondays are strategy days where my partner and I focus on higher level strategic things. But half a day Wednesday, that's team related day. And so what we work in there is ways I'm creative. There are things that make me healthy. And one thing that makes me healthy is being creative, having the, the downtime to think, to read, to write. So we have a whole day weekly dedicated to content creation for me. And so I'm alone. I'm writing. I'm in comfortable places. Uh, and I'm, I'm focused on just outputting and reading and taking in uh, the things that make me more most creative. So, you know, I would say as you grow your business, anything you want to do that's, that allows you to grow or be healthy or anything, you, I think calendaring those things is a really strong strategy mm-hmm. to do it. Or you just won't do it if it's just up in your head, mm-hmm. or at least I won't. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs are the same. They'll just kind of think they're supposed to do it and run themselves in the ground. Well, we have to block it off. And, you know, we follow some other books by, you know, Gino Wickman that talk about clarity days. So quarterly, my partner and I will just take a whole day off uh, and we'll 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 think about very higher level things. And that's when I'll go and walk in the woods because I love to be out in the woods and we'll just think more clearly about higher level things. And then we'll come back and talk about what was the thing you gained clarity on. And so those are real important. And so we have to calendar almost every related health activity, you know, to, to make our lives healthy. That's very important. Yeah, I just love that. I think the biggest takeaway from, for me and all of that is just the intentionality of it all. Mm. Uh, it's so easy as a business owner to jump from one fire to the next. It is. And, and that's the easy way to get burnout. And I've done it, you know, before. And I'm getting better and better at what you're already doing, which is intentionally blocking out my schedule and saying, hey, I'm, I'm taking this block of time for myself. Uh, whatever that may be. Maybe it's going to the gym. Maybe it's, like you said, taking a walk in the woods. Maybe it's reading a book. Because yep. if we don't block those times on our schedules, something else will consume it. Um, oh, yeah. That's a guarantee. Yeah, yeah and, I, and I'll say I'm, I'm not very good at these kind of things. My partner is innately good at them. Just auto, just, she's automatically good at them. So she drives a lot of this calendaring and health, and it's really important. Like I never probably would have done it. So, I mean, there's a point at which an entrepreneur needs needs help. They can't do everything on their own, though, you know, we entrepreneurs think we can. Uh, there comes a point when things just get too big and you can't wing it anymore. And sometimes you have to let somebody into your life that says, hey, I don't think that's good for you. And you, you're going to have to fight how that feels 
because <laughs> entrepreneurs don't like to be told no or <laughs> but it's it but somebody often can see from a different perspective what's what's crushing that entrepreneur and so that's what a partner adding that kind of partner in is all about yeah i just love that uh, if you're out there listening and want to uh, read a little bit more from jason or hear a little more from him you can find him online at blummercpas.com uh, you can also check out his podcast businessology show uh really cool stuff online you have another podcast as well uh it is the the Thrivecast, yeah. The Thrivecast, yeah. Yeah, um, and that's for the, the accounting firm profession. So a lot of those guys listen to that for the past seven years. So that I don't know if anybody would be interested in that one. So. Yeah, you never know. Definitely uh, check him out online. Jason, uh, you're the kind of guy that I probably could talk to all day long and just gain insight after insight from. So I just greatly appreciate you being on the show. Uh, it's been awesome. Well, Jay, thank you for having me. I know you do a good work, too, in your firm and uh, and the people that listen. So thanks for letting me share some wisdom, man. Thank you, sir. I hope this episode has given you some ideas or inspiration that will help you grow your business. If you found it helpful and you know somebody else who might benefit from it as well, I would greatly appreciate it if you would take the time to share this with them, maybe on Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn, or even shoot an email over to a friend uh, with a link to this podcast in it. And if you haven't already, make sure you sign up for our email list at buildingabusinessthatlasts.com.